standing for the reading of Scripture this morning as we return to the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 8. This morning, verses 13 through 21, as we continue on in the exposition, the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 8, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. And he, that is Jesus, left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven, or the yeast, of the Pharisees, and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that you do not understand? And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. What did Jesus mean about watching out, beware, for the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven or the yeast of Herod? Well, Jesus is using a common function of language. Technically, we call it a metaphor. That is a figure of speech by which a word, in this case, leaven or yeast, or it could even be a phrase used sometime, uh, describes an object or an action by a comparison of characteristics, not literal identity. And we understand that as a common function of language. We use it all the time. So Jesus is not talking about bread that comes from the Pharisees or bread that comes from Herod. Do you remember just the previous chapter? What did Jesus say in chapter 7? It's not what you eat that goes into your body that corrupts you. It's what comes out of your heart. So, so soon, <laughs> just back in chapter 7, Jesus taught that lesson. And then, of course, he gave an object lesson in feeding the 5,000 plus and then feeding the 4,000 plus, which he makes reference to. So Jesus is using leaven or yeast in a metaphorical way to describe the characteristics of false teaching, the false teaching of the Pharisees, the false teaching of Herod. And their influence, it's like yeast in a lump of dough. You can't see it, but you can see its effects. What does it cause the dough to do? It causes the dough to rise. And it's in there, and you see it, and sometimes you can smell it. And uh, it may be tantalizing to us as bread, but Jesus is saying it's false teaching, it's bad. <laughs> Jesus isn't talking about bread. He's talking about the corruption that spreads and grows from false teaching. Now, if you understand this, if you understand that Jesus is speaking figuratively here and using a figure of speech and a metaphor, ask yourself, how do you know that? The disciples were discombobulated and confused here. Oh, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Jesus, I'm not talking about bread. If you understand that Jesus is speaking here about the influence, the spread, and the growth of false teaching, you need to ask yourself, how do I understand that? How do I know that? 
In each of the chapters, as we've been going through the exposition of the Gospel of Mark, I've tried to give you a summary overview of what that chapter is about. And for chapter 8, we have the Gospel Paradox, what looks contradictory to the world, then and now. The Gospel Paradox in this sin-fallen world. But the Gospel Paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith in divine providence integral to the salvation of the world. Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world? Do you believe that the feeding of the 4,000 plus, when Jesus had compassion on them and had been teaching them, they stayed with him for three days. Do you think Jesus was giving them self-help section uh, sessions? Do you think he was like uh, Lucy and Peanuts setting up his little counseling stand and saying, come on in two at a time and I'll, I'll tell you how to have a better life? They said they, stood, they remained with Jesus out in the uh, wilderness region for three days pursuing him and being with him and listening to him teach. Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and what he was teaching and preaching to them was God's way of salvation? That's what he was teaching and preaching them. And that's what they were receiving. And Jesus had compassion on them that having received the, the bread of life, they also needed just real bread for their trip back home because they had come so far. I mean, he tells us that. That's what Scripture tells us. I'm not making that up. And then the gospel paradox in this fallen world, as we see here in chapter 8, demands faith in the progressive revelation of Holy Scripture. That's the section that we're in right now. God progressively reveals and makes known. He shows us more and more. We, we start with it in the beginning of Scripture and go through, and we see it wonderfully unfold, God's plan and story of redemption and how He accommodates to us in ways that we might understand it. But we might perceive it, that we might connect the dots, that we may focus on it, that we may get the big picture. As a matter of fact, as we go on in this section, Jesus is going to give another object lesson of healing a blind man in a very unique way as an object lesson about the need for progressive revelation and our believing it and focusing on it and learning from it. And then the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world is that faith is demanding of us that predictive prophecy terminates in Christ's new covenant gospel. Don't get all wrapped around the axle about prophecy. People get way off base about prophecy. Here I'm going to tell you something, and this is uh, going to, we're going to find this in this chapter when we come to it, that there is predictive prophecy, predictive prophecy that terminates in Jesus as the Christ and the source of the gospel. And that must always be the core, the center that keeps us focused and unbalanced uh, with understanding Scripture. And then the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world is that faith demands the consummation, that we believe, that we trust, that we know from what God has revealed and what Jesus has done and what is integral to the salvation of the world is the promised consummation to the glory of God. We must never lose sight of that. That's given to us by faith. We can look ahead in faith to the promised consummation to the glory of God. And so as we go through the exposition of chapter 8, uh, I, I hope that you see these things unfolding and connecting and giving more and more substance from Jesus' life and ministry here. We saw in verses 1 through 10 that Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 4,000 plus people in the Gentile territory further demonstrated God's providence integral to the salvation of the world. 
Here's a beautiful picture to us in Jesus' ministry. And this is what he's doing. Jesus is saving people and Jesus is saving the world. Do you believe that? Do you hold on to that by faith? And uh, on uh, from there, uh, verse 10 and on through verse 26, the section that we're uh, in a bigger part of uh, dealing with now is that Jesus' healing of a blind man was unique in that, at least as far as it's recorded in Scripture for us, he may have done this other times, but this is the only time we have it recorded in Scripture, that he healed this blind man in two stages. And he provides for us in this another gospel object lesson about the need to understand the progressive revelation of Scripture in order to avoid the spread of false teaching. And so we're elaborating on that as we looked last time, uh, last week at verses 11 through 13, that Jesus' spirit emotional growl, he sighed deeply within himself, and this was not a, a forlorn, hopeless sigh, this was a growl of, of, of uh, being upset. It was given verbal expression over the Pharisees' disputes trying to bait and entrap Jesus with temptation to perform heavenly signs. And this should be interpreted by the words and the story in the wider scope of the Bible. And we, we talked about that last time. But we go on now this morning picking up with verse 14 and following. Jesus' teachings and works are the ultimate validation of God's ordinary means of grace intended to accommodate basic human learning and understanding. Jesus, or, or Jesus is not playing word games with us. Jesus is not playing some kind of mind puzzles with us. Nor was he with his disciples or those who, who heard him. His teaching, as we're told from Scripture, is the ultimate validation. Read Hebrews chapter 1. How God spoke in the past by the uh, prophets to the fathers, but in these latter days has spoken to us by his Son, who is the heir of all things. He is the embodiment of the truth. He speaks and reveals the truth to us. Jesus said himself in John chapter 14, Believe me for the words that I speak to you are truth, or believe me for the works that I do, that validate and show. And so Jesus is saying to us, the ordinary means of grace that God has appointed, they accommodate. It's a condescension of God's love and grace. He accommodates to us that we might learn and understand. Now I know, and we've said, this is uh, validated and, and certain in Scripture, that you must have the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to bring the truth to bear and to believe it. But also, it can be taught and intellectually understood. It can only be believed by the gift of faith and regeneration by the Holy Spirit. But God uses these ordinary means to accommodate learning and understanding. Here's a section from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, that I take a lot of uh, uh, reassurance and comfort in. That is, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, not only the educated, but the uneducated, in the due use of ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. And so, the doctrine of salvation, what God reveals to us in word and in types and in um, uh, precepts and in um, object lessons and all these various things that are recorded for us in Scripture in these ordinary means, God's way of salvation is knowable. 
It takes the almighty power of God's sovereign grace changing the heart through the gift of faith to believe it unto salvation. But you don't have to have a Ph.D. We don't believe in some esoteric secret knowledge. We believe the gospel is proclaimed openly. And by it, God is pleased to call sinners to repentance. So we back up just a moment to verse 13, that Jesus left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. And I just want to, to make note of this, that once again, the boat is both a literal and a symbolic part of the story narrative. We've been talking about the boat. The boat shows up over time and time again, and the boat is a literal boat that Jesus gets into. But I also want you to see how it's used here in traversing the sea and how Jesus goes from place to place, and it represents to us a symbolic uh, development for Jesus and the disciples not only in changing geographical location, but also the transition in the phase of public ministry. And that, that's significant. I already pointed out to you that Jesus came by boat from the predominantly Gentile uh, southeast region of Decapolis, and now he's traversed back over to the eastern side somewhere of the predominantly Jewish uh, Pharisee area. Um, along this, uh, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So the boat, yes, is a literal boat. And yes, they geographically change location. But also it represents to us the transition in phases of Jesus' public ministry as well. And then that brings us to verses 14 through 18 this morning. Jesus expected his use of analogies in preaching and teaching to be mentally clear and connected to the theological subject of his lesson objective. Jesus had an objective in his lesson. He was teaching his disciples something. He expected them to understand, to connect it, to focus on it, that it would be mentally clear and connected to what he had been doing and what he had been preaching. I already made mention of chapter 7 where Jesus said, it's not what goes into your mouth and into your stomach that corrupts you. And so when Jesus said, beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, he expected his disciples to understand that he was speaking to them of the metaphor of the spread and the growth of false teaching and its influence and to be aware of it, to know about it, to be guarded against it. So in verses 14 through 16, we find that the disciples are confused over Jesus intently charging them and their confusion resulted from their circumstantial and literalistic interpretation of Jesus' words. Look at verses 14 through 16. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat, but uh, he charged them. And this word charge is a very powerful word. Uh, it has to do with thoroughly instilling. As if, have you ever had this experience, maybe as a child, where, where one of your parents would, you know, gently but firmly focus your face between their hands to their eyes and say, listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> and if they didn't do that physically, certainly they did that um, by inten intensity of language or to get your attention. I mean, it happened to me. You know, mom got or dad got my little <laughs> face in their hands and said, listen to what I'm saying. And so this is what Jesus is charging them. He's thoroughly stilling and instilling in them, listen to what I'm saying. I, he charged them. Uh, verse 15, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. Does that connect with you? It was like, what? 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 They didn't get it. Jesus wasn't talking about bread. Now, for Christian ministers and believers in the church, the disciples' confusion over Jesus' words provides us an example of the same kind of confusion when forced literalism is identified with extra-biblical, circumstantial, historical evidences. When we try to take the Word of God, the Bible, and we try to circumstantially make it fit into our, our literalistic uh, view. And here are some examples of that. An earth-centered model of planetary motion. We take and we misrepresent the Word of God, we force it into the circumstances and we take it literally... And then we come up with, oh, the earth is the center of the planetary motions. Uh, How about insisting that bread and wine in the Lord's Supper change over into the physically limited human flesh and blood of Christ? Because Jesus said, this is my body, uh, this is my blood. And then in the very same passage where that is elaborated on, not necessarily in the institution of the Lord's Supper, but where Jesus elaborated on it, He says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Your fathers ate manna, the bread from heaven. They they ate that in the wilderness and are dead. And so Jesus is clarifying and indicating to us that we need to understand by the analogy of revelation and faith what he is saying. He is more to us than bread or wine is to our body in terms of being our life. We live in Him. Uh, What about the dreaded credit card number or barcode as being the mark of the beast? Or that the locust out of the pit or some kind of helicopter gunships or some other kind of technological war machine? Or that the political villain du jour is the Antichrist? These things just go on and on. And they show how we miss the meaning of Scripture like the disciples did by adding in extra-biblical, circumstantial, historical evidences with a literalistic forcing of the words out of their meaning from Scripture. And so that's what happened to the disciples here. Oh, Jesus is upset with us because we didn't bring any bread. And so he's saying we can't have the bread from the Pharisees or from Herod. And that's not what Jesus was saying. So we know that because Jesus got upset with the fact they didn't follow and understand and make the connection with what he was telling them. How intent he was in charging them, instilling in them to beware, to be cautious, to be on your guard. This is a serious matter. The spread of the influence of the Pharisees and of Herod in their false teachings and beliefs and superstitions and man-made traditions. All these things Jesus has been talking about, he distills it now, warning them and says, beware of this. Don't you get it? Be still. Listen to what I'm saying. And they're like, oh man, he's mad at us because we didn't bring any bread. So verses 17 and 18, Jesus being aware of it said to them, 
Why do you reason because you have no, no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Now, I want you to see here in this connection that with the disciples' confusion, Jesus uses words describing ordinary mental activities. He says to them, why are you reasoning this way? Uh, don't you perceive? Don't you understand? We've, we've seen these words used before. When Jesus says, don't you see with faith? Making the connection, connecting the dots, putting it together. Keep focused. Uh, Jesus has used these very same words before over in chapter 4 and chapter 6. And he goes on here to further describe unhearing ears and unseeing eyes. And once again, Jesus is not speaking literally. They were hearing, but they weren't hearing with understanding. They weren't hearing with faith. They were seeing, but they weren't seeing with understanding, and they were not seeing with faith. So Jesus is not speaking literally when he says you have unhearing ears and unseeing eyes. He's speaking figuratively about their spiritual uh, their spiritual inattentiveness. And he goes on to say, don't you remember? They were sluggish. They were slow. They weren't quick to remember. They weren't quick to connect it and put it together. They were not focused. They weren't focusing on things. Uh, I, I, in a sense, I feel what Jesus is saying here, look, I fed the 5,000 plus, I fed the 7,000 plus, you had plenty of leftovers. Are you afraid you're going to go hungry? I'm telling you about something far more important. This is more important than, than having some bread to eat. I'm not going to let you go hungry. There are more important things. And so Jesus is saying, you're not focusing, you're not remembering. You're not putting it together. And when he says, are your hearts still hardened? He's not saying they're unbelievers. He's saying that they're unteachable. In many ways, he's describing them as being very childish. You're unteachable. You're remaining in this condition, and you've got to grow up out of it. So by the authority of Christ, Christian ministers are also intensely charged. This is a charge we read in 2 Timothy. You've probably heard it before, but Paul writing to Timothy and through him to Christian ministers, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. And this is what Jesus is also saying to his disciples in preparing them for the gospel ministry. and saying this is necessary, this is needed. You need to focus on this. You need to pay attention. You need to connect it. You need to remember. And Christian believers in the New Covenant Church are also urgently ordered to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. So it's not just that I have the responsibility before God and to give an account before God and to also in view of the coming day of the Lord. You have a, a, a responsibility also to reason and understand 
to attend, to listen, to remember, to pay attention, (laughs) to be instilled. You have that responsibility as well. Faithful Christian ministers are to be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul again is writing here about the responsibility of Christian ministers. This is what I am to be to you. An example regarding the word, the conduct, the love, the spirit, faith, and purity. I'm to be giving attention to reading the word of God, to exhorting you from the word of God, to the teaching and doctrine of the word of God. And I'm to do this not in my own power or my own gifts and abilities, but rather not neglecting the gift of God's calling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit's calling to the gospel ministry. It's not something I chose for myself, but that which was received from Christ under Him, a gift to the church as a teacher-preacher, as a pastor-teacher. And this was given by the prophecy, by the foretelling of the laying on the hands of the eldership in ordination. I've told you before that that laying on of hands is not only a sign of unity, but it's also a sign of handing someone over to God. What you're doing now, you answer to God for in a special way. When we lay hands on in ordination, it's not just that that is a a display of solidarity and unity, that we are of one uh, office in the church in terms of serving God with different responsibilities, different titles, different duties, but, uh, but ordained of Christ in his church. We don't make it up on our own. But there is something more. Whenever you see an ordination and the laying on of hands, it's not often expressed, but it should be. You're being handed over to God. You're handed over to Christ. You're going to give an answer to Christ. That's what Paul writes here. That uh, we will give an answer. Or back up in Second uh, Timothy chapter 2 and And uh, four, where he says that we're charged before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in kingdom. That's what we're being handed over to. And he goes on to say, then um, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. We're to be growing and progressing in the faith. As a minister, I'm to be growing and progressing in the faith and to be leading and directing you in that growth in grace and in the faith. Paul says, take heed to yourself and the doctrine. Continue in them. Now listen to this. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Take heed to yourself as a minister of the gospel and all these things that I've said that are your responsibility and what you are as a minister of the gospel and to the doctrine, the teaching that has been uh, given to us in Scripture and that you are to give yourself to intently to continue in them, for in so doing, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now that should get your attention. Just like that passage in James says, receive with meekness the implanted word, the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. Because it's a means, an ordinary means of grace that God uses to convey to us and to, to reveal to us His salvation. It's God who saves us. We're not confused about that. But God uses these means that he's appointed. And here, Paul is saying, so serious, so intent, this charge of instilling 
the importance of this is that in so doing, you save yourself and those who hear you. It's not self-salvation. It is being faithful to God's way of salvation. God is pleased to save sinners through the preaching of the word of God. The world sees it as foolish. Through gathering and worship and the ordinary means of grace, to testify to us and to assure us of his truth and to keep us, God is saving us. And this is the way God saves us. And so that's what Jesus is so intently directing his disciples to understand and building it up. And it's elaborated on, as we've pointed out through these scriptures that we've referenced. Now look at verses 19 through 21. When I broke the five loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take or did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven uh, for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said unto him, Seven. So he said to them, How is it that you do not understand? Now, in verses 19 through 21, Jesus asked factual questions about his witness to redirect the disciples back to a clear theological starting place in order to continue their progress in sanctification. And I don't want you to miss that. You know, Jesus isn't just asking these questions here out of frustration. No, Jesus is redirecting the disciples back to a clearer theological starting place. We've got to go back. It's remediating in their faith. We've got to go back and start over from the place that's clear to you that you might continue on in the progress of sanctification. And I have a, if you look in your study notes, I have a chart there that shows Jesus' responses to the Pharisees and the disciples by a comparison of the grammatical uses. I've told you that the grammatical functions of language as they're recorded for us in Scripture are beneficial. That's part of the exposition of Scripture. Language is meaningful. Words have meaning. And we already talked this morning, for example, the use of a figure of speech in a metaphor when Jesus talked about leaven or, or yeast. And so it's important that we look at the grammatical functions and the grammatical uses uh, of the way Scripture is recorded for us. In this comparison, you'll see that to the Pharisees, Jesus gave a formal threatening oath. And we talked about that last week, and we talked about the particular use of language and grammar. And we even pointed out how Jesus used, uh, or at least it's recorded for us in, in Mark's Greek text, that there was a, a carryover word from Hebrew into Greek and po- probably in Aramaic as well. Amen. Amen or amen, which means so be it. Truly. Uh, sometimes it's translated truly or um, uh, in, in other ways it's translated, but it's the word amen. It's not a Greek word. It's not an Aramaic word. It's a, it's a Hebrew word. So it's taken over and used in, and used in the course of language. So that's an example. Jesus gives a formal threatening oath to these um, Pharisees. But to the disciples, Jesus gives an intense commanding charge. To the Pharisees, Jesus uses, or at least it's recorded for us in Mark's gospel, of a conditional clause expecting a negative condition. Again, we talked about that last week. But now, to the disciples in verses 19 through 20, Jesus uses factual questions witnessing to a positive faith, taking them back to a clear theological starting place. Remember, 
when I did this? And then rhetorical questions. Jesus uses rhetorical questions for both the Pharisees and for the disciples. Now, rhetorical questions are like truth serum in the soul, prompting psychological responses in the conscience. You cannot unhear a rhetorical question. You may try to resist it. You may try to drown it. You may try to la 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 But you cannot unhear it. I, I was thinking about this in, in, by way of illustration. Do you know what a speed limit sign is? A speed limit sign is a rhetorical question. And you know what punctuates that rhetorical question? A police car. And if you see a speed limit sign, you may, you know, not pay that much close attention to it, but if your attention is brought to it, all of a sudden, it's truth serum in your soul. How fast am I going? I was driving down through here one day, and I was, you know, thinking about probably the sermon or something, you know. Well, the speed limit through here is 45, and I wasn't paying attention to my speed. Um, I was going faster than 45, and you know how I know this? Because I looked in my rearview mirror, and there was one of our local patrol cars behind me. And I looked down, and I was going faster than 45, and I took my foot off of the accelerator just involuntarily. He didn't stop me because I, my car slowed down. I wasn't going that much faster, but enough to where I'm sure I could have uh, received a ticket. But it was involuntary. I was just... You know, driving down through there. Drive this road. For years I've driven this road. Saw the police car in my rearview mirror and immediately looked at my speedometer and took my foot off of the accelerator just like in a blink of an eye. Because a rhetorical question is truth serum to your soul. You cannot unhear it. And so Jesus uses these rhetorical questions. To the Pharisees, he condemns their unbelief. To the disciples, he corrects their weak belief in the use of these rhetorical questions. And I, I think it's really valuable for you to read through here and to see the difference and to make the comparison. From the example of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's witness to Scripture here, there is an expectation of Christian growth and maturity in the mind of Christ for believers then and now. We are to be growing. We're to be Growing up, we're to be maturing with the mind of Christ from God's ordinary means and the receiving of Scripture. So sanctified rhetorical questions are not intended to undermine faith by engendering doubts, but rather to instill self-examination through Christ's promised means of grace. That's why we're called to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's Supper. To honestly evaluate. That's why uh, as an um, exhortation from the Word of God, I say to you, don't be holding on to unconfessed sin. Don't be harboring resentment, bitterness, and unforgiveness. These are the exhortations that come from Scripture that I, in my responsibility before God, are to call you to self-examination, not to engender doubt, but to encourage you to repentance and faith by the means of grace and to instill in you from the Holy Spirit's witness the comfort, peace, and assurance that God tells us are validated, our validations of His love. 
And so when we come to this Lord's Supper, there has been historical dispute over how do you fence the table at the Lord's Supper. And I am in the uh, view and practice that you call people to self-examination in conscience before God. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And I believe from the Word of God what He says. So I, as a a minister of Christ, call you to self-examination not to threaten you, not to try to control you, not to riddle you with guilt, but rather to bring you to the cross and to tell you to look to Jesus, to examine yourselves, to discern the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, not through some kind of corrupted superstition, but through the words of faith that Jesus said, identifying this bread and identifying this cup. This is my uh, body. This is my blood. With a figure of speech that speaks louder than literalism. It's not, we're not talking about bread and talking about uh, uh, wine or juice here. We're talking about the reality of Jesus under a symbol. This is a symbol of my body. This is the symbol of my blood. The reality is much greater. Don't doubt that this is bread. Don't doubt that this is either wine or juice. Uh, We've talked about that before. To your physical senses. How silly, how foolish it would be if I said, okay, everybody this morning, we're going to do a little experiment. We're all going to take the bread of the Lord's Supper, but we're going to say out loud, This was bread, now it's an apple. This was bread, now it's an apple. You say, Pastor, you've lost your mind. That's silly, that's foolish, that's playing games. Mind games and word games. This was bread, now it's flesh. This was bread, now it's flesh. No. This bread is a symbol. Jesus says, I am more real by faith than this bread is. To your physical senses. This is wine or juice. Jesus says it's a symbol. I am more real to you by faith than this is to your physical senses. My incarnation and my sacrificial death, my resurrection and ascension and glorification, these must be instilled by faith. It's a paradox to the world. But to us, it is life. And so, I call you, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ that you examine yourselves, as Paul says, examine yourselves if you're in the faith. He doesn't say examine yourself if you had a petty argument. Look, if you had a petty argument, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you of that and you're going to need to make it right and and, and forgive and confess. You know the right thing to do. But the bigger picture is what the Scriptures say. Examine yourselves if you are in the faith. Do you believe that Jesus is your Savior, the Savior of the world? That He came in a body like yours and yet unlike yours? That He gave His life, His life blood. He died. And in that death, your sins and its guilt died. And He rose again. 
for your justification, that you are made right with God through Jesus Christ, livingly united to Him, more so than this bread or this juice is to your body. I mean, it's wonderful, elaborated symbolism. And that symbolism is just an inkling of the greater reality. And so the scriptures call us to faith. Examine yourself if you're in the faith, if you believe Jesus and confess Jesus is your Savior. He's the Savior of the world. In preparation for the Lord's Supper this morning, we turn to hymn number 615.